Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out Swiss and European fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Hussein, who is a CEO and co-founder on Fido. On Fido is an AI-enabled digital identity startup, or now maybe shall I say scale-up after they raised 100 million from TPG Growth earlier this year. And we're going to talk about how they verify the ID documents digitally, how that can be applied for banking or fintech applications, and also much debated immunity passport. So welcome, Hussein. How are you today? I am well. I am well, thank you. Hussein, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and you know why did you want to start your own business? I know that you studied at Oxford. Of course, you could have done a lot of other things. So why did you want to become an entrepreneur? So my name is Hussein, as you say. I'm one of the three co-founders and the CEO at Onfido. And we started in 2012, so eight years ago. And why did we start a company and you know the extent to which it's relevant to being at university it's there are a number of reasons but your point around what happened during university was you you were in many ways expected to either go into consulting or into banking and i have friends that have done that and those are important and necessary roles but another issue that i had was that we were informed of all the different problems that you have around the world and therefore you know having everyone conform to one expected um, career path just seemed a bit alien to me and I was lucky and I was involved with the Oxford Entrepreneur Society where I met one of my co-founders that opened my eyes to entrepreneurship as a route and prior to that for me growing up I was always interested in whether it's trading markets the whole thing as in many ways like a just significant interest in it and how it all works so when I combined that with me clearly knowing there's a problem in the identity space specifically when I turned 12 my when I turned 10 sorry my parents moved from Iran to the UK and it just took them a few months to open a bank account and rent in their own name just because they weren't able to easily effectively prove their legal identity so I put all the things together interest in doing something entrepreneurial deep desire not to conform to you know a set career path and lastly this painful identity process that I could see along with my co-founders as being both broken and needing to be solved. Hence, we thought of starting a company. And how did you pick your co-founders or was it the other way around? Uh, did they pick you? Co-founder relationships are a very important one and it kind of happened. So I have a technical co-founder, Rahul. He and I started working together after I'd worked with five other developers. And Rahul was the first to be not just very proactive, but he kind of shared the passion and the desire to solve this problem. And you can imagine in a university setting, you know, no one's getting paid, there's no funding, everyone's got coursework, exams and everything. So it really takes that deep-seated hunger to want to drive an initiative forward, which I was very lucky to find uh, with Rahul. And on, on my other co-founder, Eamon, he and I had a working relationship while we were the members of the Oxford Entrepreneurs Student Society. So I was the president and he was a vice president and we had a large committee and we did a whole host of things. But that was just such a collaborative 
an impressive relationship and that's even to this day eight years later he is not only a, a real doer but does it does everything up to a very high standard and we complement each other's skills so, so well so we came as a three and eight years later it's sort of perhaps has proven that we had the appropriate skills to complement each other all right understood so what is on fido how does it work and you know you already talked about how did you come up with the on fido's key idea but uh can you explain a little bit how does it work? Because I think a lot of people are using it without even realizing, right? Quite possibly. So we have at its core, the name in Latin, the roots of the name at least, stands for trust and confidence. So Fido in Latin is trust and Confido is confidence. So on Fido as a name is, is about trust and confidence. What we do is essentially digitally prove a person's real identity online. So as you're registering for an online bank, for example, when you download the app or if it's on a, your computer, you're asked to take a photo of your ID and a short selfie video. And then what we're doing behind the scenes is we're checking that your government ID, such as a driving license, isn't fake and that your photo on the ID matches the selfie video that you submitted. So that A, is a genuine ID and B, that it belongs to you and that it sort of matches your face. And we do it in a range of different verticals, remittance like Remitly, can be car rentals like Zipcar. In fact, it can increasingly is digital access to buildings, hotels, or even airports with a partner like Clear in the US, you can go from curb to gate with just your smartphone, scanning a barcode, QR code system. uh, And that way you don't need to show physical IDs every place you go. Right. You raised a lot of money this year. So what are you planning to spend it on? We have two areas that we're going to focus on. The first is growth. And globally, as you probably can Yes, there's a proliferation of digitization, given all the guests you, you have in the fintech focus. And that is just at its very, very early stages. In our view, less than 1% of that has happened. So 99% of that is to come. And a crucial part in that digitization process is the digital identity component. Because historically, we've been able to go inside a bank branch and have a human bank clerk essentially verify us. And now mm-hmm. if it's all digital and it's all online, all these online businesses fintechs, for example, need to still know that that person who's registering remotely, they are who they claim to be at the point of registration and on an ongoing basis every time thereafter. So one part of what we're doing is investing in growth and we're spread across nine offices and we have businesses registered or clients registered in 64 countries, but that's growing. And then the other part is to focus on the technology. As a team of about 400, more than half on the technology side. And that seems like a large number, but in fact, it's very little (laughs) compared to the task at hand. And in our sort of field, fraud is a big issue. You have bad actors, fraudsters continuously attempting to gain access to these online businesses. And we're working hard to, to prevent and reduce that. So this is a, fraud as a whole is a big problem in that the United Nations estimates that up to 5% of the world GDP is laundered money. That's almost $2 trillion. And what's worse is that of all that money that's laundered, 99% of it is successful. So less than 1% of that laundered money is ex- uh, estimated to be actually caught. So you can imagine there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. And what we do is we sit in the middle of all the different businesses. As we onboard customers of theirs, our machine learning models improve. We get better at detecting which IDs seem genuine and which aren't. And similarly with the facial recognition components. And that as it improves, it stops bad actors. So the investment is geared, A, for, for growth and sales, and B, other technology fronts. Right. And how are you different from your competitors? Or are there any relevant ones versus 
you know, is the only alternative just doing it in in person? So at a, at a broad level, there is the alternative methods. One is to see as a business onboard people in branch, like face to face, which is not that convenient and it can be time consuming and increasingly in a sort of a convenience first economy that is becoming more relevant and important. Naturally, given that we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, that's even more relevant. And then the other approach historically has been using credit bureaus, which are centralized databases of people's date of birth, name, address, and other pieces of information. The challenge is, is that given the breaches, that data is now available on the dark web. So it's easy for fraudsters to be able to take a steal that information and then impersonate others and commit identity fraud, which is a, an issue in the US. Identity fraud is the largest crime and the fastest growing crime. And so that is that approach and that in some ways is why that is becoming less popular. And then in our specific approach of using a government ID and facial biometrics to digitally verify it, we have a few competitors. All of us in our field are relatively new. We all started roughly in about 2012. And that's in large part because that's when internet connectivity, camera phone qualities, facial biometrics, all the different technological building blocks came together to enable that right. in, in that period. And the reason why we've done particularly well is the approach that we've picked to solve for that problem has been machine learning driven. So that as you do more checks, the models get stronger and you become more effective at not just detecting fraud, but onboarding and verifying more people and being able to do it at a sort of a, in a fast way. And that's why we've been lucky in uh, being able to become the market leader. Great. So how does this online verification work, though? And how does it stack up versus regulatory requirements? From experience, I know it's very hard to persuade the lawyers and the compliance people in the bank to leave their ways and uh, accept a slightly higher degree of risk, right? So if they were used to verify the identity of a person in person, and now they would just do it remotely, how, how do you break that habit and persuade them that it's still safe? So in parts, your example of, of banks, there is a mindset change, and there has been one, especially over the last three or four years. And that historically, the mindset was the human eye is, is strong and can, can do these checks effectively. And therefore, the optimal option is to have people come inside the bank branch and, and do it that way. Whereas what the online businesses, specifically fintech, have been able to show and demonstrate, especially over the last five years, is that they're able to fully have, have a digital proposition and be able to scale very effectively, give a much, much better customer experience. And that has been a key driver for their success but to do so without having to compromise on security and fraud. And so as they've been able to succeed, more and more customers have signed up to these online and digital platforms rather than the more mainstream ones. And that is specifically the case with the smartphone generation and millennials. So what that has led is the mainstream banks to look specifically at how they can have a more customer UX-friendly, user interface-friendly approach and user experience-friendly approach. And in order to do so, it by definition means it has to be digital. And in order to do that, it by definition means, means you have to do remote identity verification, which is what we do. And as we've been able to show over the years that scientifically we can do a better job at detecting fakes than the human eye can, and there are uh, an increasing number of fakes that the human eye cannot detect but machine learning models can, that has led the transition into this becoming seen as essentially increasingly the, the default and best way when you want to compromise maximizing the number of people you're onboarding while stopping the fraudsters and ensuring the best customer experience. So that has been the key 
approach as to your question how why has it become more common right but but still let's follow up on you know what some skeptics say that uh, every code in the world can be broken and every software can be hacked so what do you do so it doesn't happen to you it can be and more importantly every database can be hacked whether it's government or otherwise and we're getting these stories quite frequently now so there are two parts to this one is when a machine learning models are developed they are able to assess as to whether government ID is fake or not, but they don't need to actually store any personal information. So if, you, if you've seen, a, as a machine learning model, a million, say, French passports, then you are going to get really good at detecting the patterns, the font style, any sort of security feature on there. But you don't have to store those million personal information data points on them. And that's the beauty of having models that are developed that can detect fakes without having to store personal information. So that is one way that you're getting security without having to compromise on privacy. And we are big advocates for a move away from centralized databases. And in the end states, our vision is to help individuals own and control their own real or legal identity themselves so that there wouldn't be any database and your personal data wouldn't be stored anywhere. And as a result, that is the, the, that it's only at that state where you can get essentially full security. So you don't create honeypots for uh, fraudsters? Not only do you not create honeypots, but the organizations that you need to prove your identity to, they don't need to store any of information either. Because the challenge of is, course, yeah. every time I, I sign up, whether it's to the gym, a supermarket, a remittance platform, or other, they are all storing a lot of information on me, and that exponentially increases the likelihood of one of them getting breached, and therefore my data being available to others. So that is another, it's like no honeypots anywhere. Right. So now your machine learning models have learned and they're smart and everything works very well. But if you go back a little bit to the early stages and uh, say, well, how did that work in terms of liability, right? So what if somebody passed on the test uh, using your software and then it turned out this document was fake? How did that work or how does that still work if that if that could happen? So it definitely could still happen. And this is one of the ways in which we were different to others. So from the outset, we never claimed to be able to catch 100% of the fakes. And in fact, we, we very proactively told in the early days, prospect clients, now it's commonplace, but in the early days, we, we always told prospect clients, document ID and facial biometrics is, is relatively new. And just like an antivirus software, fraudsters will cheat the system. Now, at the time, we were kind of the only ones in the space explaining it that way because it's, it was the facts and it's like scientifically proven. But we said we are different in that our aim with you as a customer is we will verify these identities for you, but our pace of improvement will be faster than anyone else's. So as and when there are forces that come through, you will alert us and then we'll be able to do a better job and catch them next time. And that's how our models develop. And even till this day, out of every 10,000 identities that we see, that is a government ID and facial biometrics, on average, we expect about 2% to be fraudsters. That's about 203 on average. And of those 203, we successfully catch 200, but we still miss three. So out of every 10,000, essentially, random sample from the checks that we carry out, three fraudsters cheat the system and make it through. What then happens is a month later, that client, let's say they're a lender, they then realize that this person was a fraudster because maybe they didn't repay a loan and they were chased and they, they turned out to be someone else, they alert us automatically through our system. Our models then are able to learn for the, a future example of those kind of 
frauds trying to come through. And that's why we've improved it to a state where the fraud is only the very sophisticated ones that can cheat it. And it's just continuously improving. And that was in some ways refreshing for the industry because it wasn't a claim that you can catch 100%. But in fact, it was a claim that we will most certainly miss sophisticated ones. But what we can commit to you is we're going to catch more than anyone else. And that's worked quite well. Right, right. You did mention liability. On that, us, not just us, but also the credit bureau industry and model and all the others, none of us are able to take liability. And that's why it's, it doesn't really happen, uh, in large part because of this issue around um, the question of frauds is still being able to cheat the system. So it's, again, like an antivirus software provider would never be able to guarantee that no viruses go through. They, they may well claim that they are the best, but that's as far as it can go. And that's why liability on fraud specifically uh, doesn't happen in the industry. Right. And uh, so I guess what, you, what you're hinting at as well is that uh, these sort of online verification has to be combined with other checks. So if that is a fraudulent onboarding, then if somebody doesn't repay the loan, you'll find out. But if it's a money launderer, well, you have other software to check the patterns and things like that, right? And uh, this is, uh, I think this is what you're getting at as well, right? And this is um, how you would deal with that two, two or three cases out of 10,000. You could think of it that way, exactly. What are the next steps for you this year and beyond? So we are focusing in large part in, uh, on expanding into Germany in particular. That's one area of focus. Our core and key market remains the US is our largest and fastest growing one. So we have coverage, well, we have team members on the field, not just in North America, across Europe, but increasingly in Southeast Asia. So that's going to continue. The second, from a product line, we're doing a lot more on ongoing authentication. So on the Monday, let's say for remittance platform, the individual shows the government ID and their face and they enroll. And then on the Wednesday or Friday, if they're locked out of their account or they need to reset their password or they need to transfer a large sum of money, they can just be asked to just show their face again and that would be an ongoing authentication use case. That is another area that we're doing quite a bit on. Um, just coming back to the point that uh, you know you did the successful fundraising this year, so obviously you're growing rapidly. So how does that affect your management style? Your three co-founders, do you still know everyone by name in Onfido or not anymore? I kind of gave up after the 20th joiner on names, but I politely explained that it's just I'm not that good with names. But doesn't mean I don't care about them. <laughs> it's a, I'm partly kidding. So every team member, really, every individual can be a team lead to five to eight people. Elon Musk says typically, you know, however many you can feed a pizza uh, with. And as a result, mine's the same. I have five team members that I actually have to focus on on a weekly basis, and they in turn have their own teams of five to eight, and and so on and so forth. Of course. So in essence. As long as you structure communications properly, as long as the goals and the mission and everything is clear and where the company is directed, and most importantly, the culture is set and strong and a self-reinforcing one, then everything else kind of just fits into place. Because you have three parts of this. You, you have like the people part, that's incredibly important at the interview stage and at the onboarding point and at the development uh, of it as well. You've got processes which are rules and things that you can set sort of in a structured way this is let's do this this way this is how we sell for example this is the playbook to selling and then the third piece is the culture piece the norms and habits the unwritten and unspoken rules that govern how you 
not just act, but also how you make decisions. That is part of something that is in the company's DNA and is sort of needs to, over time, grow and become stronger. And it does so by everyone in the team exhibiting those cultural values and also you recruiting individuals who match those cultural values. So once those things are in place, then it really not ought not to matter whether you're kind of 400 or 4,000, but there are specific tipping points that are tricky beyond the 25-person mark is a, a little bit hard, beyond the 150-person mark is a bit tough, and I think beyond like the 500-person mark is going to be tough, but you it continuously evolve as your org structure and the way you kind of function and you put a new process in, in place. And as and when possible, not just seeking advice from those who've done it, but even hiring those who've done it will hopefully get you to be in a good place to be able to scale effectively. Good to hear. Did you always believe that this is going to work out or did you have moments where you felt like, well, you know, just leave it. I'm going to give up on this. There were very many tough moments. There, there's, I mean, still are. It's the startup environment is, is not for everyone. And those who've worked at fast growing startups know exactly what I mean. But I don't think I ever kind of really sat down at any point and thought, like, are we going to make it or not? My, my view is like, whether you're going to make it or not is more or less dependent on you. So if you work hard enough and you do it with the right attitude and you, you're lucky enough to, for the timing to be right, but more importantly for like you having the right team members helping you, then you're, you're kind of, there's no reason why you wouldn't essentially succeed. For me, the biggest and most important factor is the team. And every time we have a new team member join, specifically one where maybe they're more senior or they're more experienced, that is by far the biggest sign that you know we're on the right track and we're going to continue to be fortunate and to do well. So as long as you get the team parts right and the culture and you just happen to have the uh, be in a market that is sort of opening, then for me it it's becomes a more of a question of what can go wrong as opposed to will it go right. Obviously, the 2020 hasn't turned out so far the way any of us uh, imagined or hoped for. And for a lot of people, this has been a tremendous upheaval, but there are pockets of opportunities for startups, right? And because this presented also problems or accentuated certain problems, and for some of those are no solutions yet, but some of them, for some of them, they are. And I understand that, and therefore I understand that you are trying to leverage your technology on immunity passports and uh, so that we can very effectively in a digital way leverage them and and work through this uh, pandemic or the world after the pandemic a bit more smartly yes so naturally there are two parts to this is essentially an immunity passport is basically geared towards helping create a path to getting life back to normal and so an individual can prove that they've been tested and that their test results belong to them but without having to share any personal information so it's a bit like a digital certificate that can be displayed like a smartphone boarding pass, for instance. And it's a this notion of a immunity certificate isn't necessarily new. Uh, children who get vaccinated for measles and polio, for example, when they want to register for a new school, they have to display their immunity certificates before they're able to do it. So the role that we play is once a authority, whether it's a government health service or a private company, once they determine what test kits they want to run with and how that is distributed, then the stage where we come in is once that individual has been tested and now they need to go out and present that to others where if they want to access a building or go to a concert or, and so on, then naturally the person's digital identity, we bind that to their app 
and we help them signal that every time thereafter in the future days and months, similar to a displaying a smartphone boarding pass, as I mentioned. And that's the role that we typically play. All right. Well, great. I'm looking forward to check it out when it's available. So thank you, Hussein. Great, uh, great ideas and explanations about what you do and what's in store for you. So where can interested parties reach you if they want to find out more about OnFida? What's the best way and what kind of people would you like to hear from most? We're on Twitter, uh, OnFido, and then equally is Hussein Kasai, my personal handle. And with regard to those who want to find out more, we do frequent blogs, articles, and a range of other things. So if this is of interest, do check us out. Great. Well, thank you very much and good luck to OnFido. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.